Cairo, Seattle. It's Rachel Bell, and this is the very first live edition of Your Last Meal, which I always imagined there would be thunderous applause, but since this is virtual, I'm going to announce this, and then we're going to just have awkward silence like this for just a minute. Um, Thanks so much to Crosscut Festival for having us. And when I say us, I guess I mean me, but it makes me sound more important to say us. Um, Let me just explain the show a little bit because I know there are people who've never heard it or people who don't live in the area. So on each episode of Your Last Meal, I interview a celebrity about their last meal. So past guests include John Waters and Greta Gerwig, Mayim Bialik, Ben and Jerry, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, And then I dig into the science, the culture, and the history of that dish that they choose with experts from around the world. So today's guests are the third generation owners of Canlis, a James Beard Award winning fine dining institution in Seattle that opened in 1950. It was more recently than 1950 described by the New York Times as Seattle's fanciest, finest restaurant, introducing brothers Mark and Brian Canlis. And then later in the show, like I mentioned, we will dig into one of their meals. Um, So I will welcome Seattle cookbook author, and if I may call her this, Dumpling Queen, Xiao Ching Chow, to the show. So she's going to be with us later. And I just want to remind everybody who's watching that we're going to do a Q&A at the end. So at any time when you have a burning question, just write it in the chat. Somebody's keeping track of that, uh, and we will get to you at the very end. Hi, Mark. Hi, Brian. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Thank you. We're glad to be well, here. We gave thunderous applause. We just want you to, I don't think we yeah, were on, we were like but cheering. we were like, it is so weird to, you know, do a performance and then just have complete silence. It's like very nerve wracking. Um, so I just want to give a little bit more background for what you've been doing for the past 16 months since the pandemic started. So the dining room at Canlis has been closed for 16 months, but you've gotten attention around the country and around the world, actually, for finding really, really inventive ways to get your food to people. A couple months ago, I got an email from a listener who said, can you stop using the word pivot? I'm so tired of people using the word pivot to describe things changing during the pandemic. So I'm going to say some of the things you've done over the past 16 months. I looked this up in the thesaurus to rotate, turn, revolve, spin, swivel, twirl, whirl, wheel, and oscillate. Twirl Twirl and whirl. There's been a lot of, (laughs) there's, there's a lot of that. Thank you for not using the P word. Yeah, Yeah, we're not saying it. Well, actually, I'll let you do it. So tell me some of the things you've done. There's like a long list of of different things you've done with your restaurant that's made it really accessible to people who, you know, maybe didn't own a tie and never went to Canlis before. We can do them in order. Do you want to hear them in order? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So Burger Drive-Thru. Burger Drive-Thru. Followed by an outdoor bagel shed bagel restaurant. Followed by home delivery. Home delivery service. Followed by, we did a piano live stream show for- home to be able to watch piano our piano players live we hosted a bingo show uh, um, which was kind of fun then we did bottle service and like alcohol and wine pairing service d- delivered to your home we did csa kits for farmers and that kind of thing uh, we opened a general store for like selling merch to raise money for nonprofits. <laughs> and we did a <laughs> drive-in movie theater in the parking lot and then we did a crab shack which was an entire restaurant we built just for covid it was this outdoor restaurant where you just ate tons of crab we opened something called canless community college a little mysterious and bad. That's a long, just, that's hard to that explain was like, yeah, that whole one. Those are probably our most successful thing we did. And then we I, did yurts. We did a yurt village. 
which was this outdoor restaurant made of yurts. Yurt Village One. And then we did Camp Canlis, which yeah. was a treehouse restaurant. We have a canteen barbecue restaurant. Yurt and then Village we have Two. A second year village. I think there are 18 ideas in there. If we, if we, unless we forgot a couple, but it's been, it's been whirly. It's been twirly and whirly. <laughs> it's been oscillating. It's been spinny. So I mentioned earlier that you are the third generation to be running this restaurant. Your grandfather started it, and then your parents took over, and then you took over. So I've always been intrigued by any family business in general because I always wonder. Did you want to do it or did you have to do it? Did you feel pressure to do it? So I guess you can answer that question, but also where were you in your lives? What were you doing when your parents decided to retire? And was it a choice to take over? It was absolutely a choice. No, we didn't think we were going to do this. Our parents really held it with an open hand. They were like, hey, it's, if you ever want this business, you're going to have to earn it. You're going to have to earn your way in, but it's not going to be handed to you. And also, if you don't want it, that's fine. We'll sell it and make some money and retire. So we had the freedom to choose or not choose. Both of us were in the Air Force. I really think they kind of pushed us out of it. But I think that looking back, you know, now that we're parents, you sort of see what mom and dad were doing and you're like, it was, it was a total Jedi mind trick. It was the Jedi. <laughs> yeah. We might have been Jedi mind tricked yeah. into coming back. Because we, we left. We, you were in Florida and I was living in Alaska. We were both in the military. And I go in different directions from restaurants, but it, we ended up doing it. I actually came back first and it was a really hard go. Like it was really hard to take over from mom and dad. And at some point, dad made a recommendation. like, you should go get your brother. That, would, your... that would like fix the whole thing. <laughs> and it kind of it <laughs> did. I wouldn't tell a story that way. It might, yeah. it might end up. No, but generational transfer, there's a reason a lot of businesses don't make it. It's hard and it takes a lot of work. Not, not everyone has a little brother. Not they're, everyone has They're me. like flying and save the day. <laughs> <laughs> so... You guys have so much energy and it makes sense that you came up with all of these creative ideas that you've done over the past 16 months, which is super unique. So I want you to tell a story, a story I've heard before, but I love, and I want you to share it with people um, to kind of show that your family has this kind of creative energy. Tomorrow's Mother's Day. Uh, your yes. mom is a little prankster. Talk about the greatest prank that Mama Canlis ever pulled on her what children. It, seriously, can we, can we go there? Are you ready emotionally? Yeah, no, I'm ready. Probably... So we're teenagers, right? Like young teenagers. I, oh, feel like, I, I feel like I was like 11, which makes you 13 or 14. The story begins when we're around the family table, all eating lasagna. No, no, it was like a chicken, yeah, uh, like a, chicken a Mexican. casserole or some kind of like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And mom, you know, she just starts giggling. Just sort of like restrained, hushed, sort like of, subtle. Oh, oh, pardon me. I've just, I'm still dealing with something funny from earlier in the day. Kind yeah. of. But she can't get it out of her mind. And she keeps and, giggling. And the giggling just starts to sort of like bubble forth as a major thing that the table's thinking they talk about. And we're like, why is mom laughing? Like, mom, what's like, going mom, on? like come on. What's the joke? Just, no, no. Like, it's nothing. I just, I can't, you know. But anyway, 30 minutes into pulling this off, when finally we get it out of her, she's like, well, do any of you have to go to the bathroom? Because I found this X-Lax in the cupboard, and I've always wondered if it worked, and so I just put it in the casserole. Yeah, I poisoned the <laughs> casserole with a diuretic. She's like, I've, and I just, what? it cracked me up. Okay, so naturally, you know what happens. One by one, we, we all yeah. excuse ourselves. We all like run to the bathroom and have to go and to the bathroom. actually uh, go to the bathroom. Uncontrollably. Like, yeah, it wasn't like we just sat there and wondered. It was like, no, we need to go. Yeah, I think Matt went first. We have an older brother. He, yeah. He booked it. So, you know, so this only increases the giggling. By the time we've all sort of returned to the table and see, this is like funny to her. After we've been poisoned. And we're like, what's so funny? And she's like, well, I was, I was joking about the X-Lax. I just, I made that up. 
<laughs> like who does it? Like, we're young children. Like, wow. Also, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I definitely went. No, I definitely went. And I don't think I'm a dinner time goer. No, just like, I'm more of a morning those, guy. You get to those rhythms. And like, okay. No, I'm still in therapy. That was the Camless family dinner table growing up. We've never done it at the restaurant, by the way. your grandparents owned this your parents owned it you own this so you grew up in this fine dining atmosphere at work but you didn't eat that way at home you told me that you know you ate pizza and macaroni and cheese and cereal kind of like a classic american 1980s white person childhood food um Mm -hmm. and so that brings me to this question um brian you have a secret guilty pleasure that nobody except your wife knows about but you've decided to tell the world so what is the food that you still feel so a little embarrassed about my mom used to always shop at Costco. And one of the things that she would get at Costco were these like five pound bags of shredded cheddar cheese. You know, like, and I love cheese. And so what I would do is I would sneak into the freezer and I would scoop it. You have to scrape it with like a fork fork to get the, and then you'd fill a, like um, a little kid cup, a plastic three inch cup packed with cheese, put it in the microwave for about 32 seconds. And you comes out and then you just eat pure melted cheese with the fork. And what's funny that you're asking this is this morning, my kids are watching The Sound of Music and my wife was asleep because she didn't sleep all last night because she's seven months pregnant with her fourth kid. And I totally did it. And this morning I ate a cup of melted cheese. You did. (laughs) No, it's like, it's a perfect food. It's perfectly seasoned. The texture is, people love nachos. They put it on pizza. But what if you just take it? The do, nacho do you and the feel pizza like those away. people are not are, are just hiding behind the fact they want they're just like, they're, the it's an excuse vehicle. to get the melted cheese into your body would you invite just them eat just the melted cheese you would. straight up i was gonna say i was married about two years my wife caught me doing it like in the kitchen eating melted cheese with the with the fork and she was absolutely horrified at how disgusting that was I think the only weird part is that you use a fork. Why would you not use a spoon? Doesn't it just well, drip through the you know, tines? You put the spoon, it'll stick, and you have to like, no, the, do that lip thing to get it off the spoon. Yeah, the, the fork really is better. You'll, you, you'll see. I've right. used both. You'll <laughs> see. A fork, a fork is a more enjoyable experience. We are going to take a teeny tiny break, but when we come back, Mark and Brian Canlis just hired a new executive chef and their hiring process is unlike anything I've heard of before. They're going to share what the application process is like. Give you a little hint. It involves making a video. We'll get into it when we come back. just hired a new executive chef and this was big news it was in the new york times the gray lady even covered it and um it made news because you're one of the country's finest restaurants but also because it was the first female executive chef you've hired and i was really impressed by this only the seventh executive chef that the restaurant has had in 70 years so people really really stick around um but i was reading an article about it in seattle metropolitan magazine and you have a very very unique interviewing process that reminded me of these things you hear about in tech companies that I've never experienced before. So can you talk about some of the more unique things that you have your candidates do when they've applied for a job at Canlis? We 
did branch out into a new interviewing process. COVID's been an unusual time, but you know, we couldn't kind of do what we wanted to do. We wanted to, we like to get to know the person, like the whole person. And typically that's a lot of time spent together, which is hard to do in the panel. So yeah, typically we'd say like, come have dinner with me and my kids or let's play a game of charades or laser tag or let's like bring you in for a poker night. Yeah. Like cooking and making great food is low on the list of what makes you a great chef. You have to be able to cook great food. I wouldn't say it's low on the list. I would say it's it's uh, the first step. Like it's an assumption. Of course you're an amazing cook. Yeah, it's of like- Of course if, you can do great things with food. Yeah, if you're going to be a football player, of course you can throw the ball. Um, yeah, so we did this thing. We just said, hey, could you write a little article? Like say you're Seattle Matt or say you're Seattle Times. Like you could just give us the headline and the byline and a couple of paragraphs about what the story is about you coming to the restaurant. And then we said, could you just make a video, like 60 seconds of you wholeheartedly doing something? like pouring yourself into a task that you're clearly not very good at, like that you just, you're terrible at. Because we believe great leaders, which is what kitchens need in this country, not great egos, are comfortable being seen. They're comfortable showing others when they're not good at something, being vulnerable. And so we had a lot of chefs send their videos of them doing things that they were good at because they couldn't Uh, and to be seen as not being great. So many people failed at this. It's 60 seconds. It's like, come on. Like we all have something that we we would just suck at. And then I couldn't do it. And it just tells you a lot about a person. The ability to let yourself or let yourself be seen is something that we lack in leadership across the board, not just in kitchens. And so so Aisha, who we hired as our chef, she's very serious and she's super professional and she's so dialed in and so talented. And we, we, we knew this from like talking to her and her resume is like insane. And she sends this video. We get her video. We're like really nervous to get her video because we really liked her. Yeah, we were, we were already kind of sold. But And she starts like really serious looking at the camera and she's like, okay, you know, I think I'm just going to do this. And she turns on some music and she starts to dance. It's like a TikTok video or something? Like, uh, like yeah. And she's so bad. This is, and, this but, is not but, her forte. But she dances hard and with her whole heart. She's like, I'm, I'm going to learn this dance like the kids do. I'm going to yeah. do it for it you. It was like the Dougie or you something. Know, and we're like cringing, you know, like nobody yeah. wants to. And she's cringing, but like, she doesn't give uh, up. Yeah. And she keeps going. And <laughs> she amazing. was like, I'm not going to stop for 60 seconds. Uh, <laughs> and we were like, that's like, there's it's a beautiful. leader we want to follow. Yeah, like, like fully. I was like, um, I wish I could do that video. I would yeah. be scared to turn the camera on and start dancing. And so. even right now, we're actually on the hunt for our new wine director. Our wine director is leaving after 19 or 20 years. He's an amazing guy. And we've done the same thing. We're, just yesterday, we got two we're more videos. Watching some fun videos. Of people setting their video in of doing something they're bad at. I think for a leadership position, it's an awesome thing to have people do. I think that's a great way to go about it because this reminds me, I applied for a job years ago actually to be a food tour guide and I didn't get the job. And I asked her afterwards, would you mind telling me why I didn't get the job? And during the interview, she asked that question that people always ask, which is, um, you know, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And of course, I have that canned weakness, the one that's not really a weakness. It's like, well, I just work too hard and I just burn myself out like the fake, you know. <laughs> the fake reason. And so she said, well, what's another weakness? And I couldn't think of one because I didn't want to tell her, yeah. well, I just kind of like go on Facebook for hours and don't get any of my work done. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I said, I'll get back to you. Let me think about it. And she never came back around. So after I didn't get the job, I asked her why I didn't get it. And she said, the fact that you couldn't reveal your weaknesses made it seem like you yeah. have an ego. And I was like, what? But every nobody answers that question sincerely. So I feel like you asking that question in the form of letting someone be silly and make a video 
allows somebody to actually, you don't have to tell people your real weaknesses. You can just show what you're bad at. That has nothing to do with your job. Just the willingness to be seen for your own humanity. It's only then that you're actually establishing a real relationship. If if all we care about is her strengths, we, we care about one slice of her. Okay, one more quick question before we get to your last meals. I was looking at the original 1950 menu from the year that Canlis opened. And by the way, lobster on the appetizer menu for $1.50, which was amazing. And a baked potato for 50 cents. There wasn't much difference in the price between a potato and lobster. Um, But the one thing that's on that menu is the canless salad that you're famous for and is still on the menu today. Three-part question. Number one, is that the only thing that's around still that's from the original menu? Number two, I guess it's a two-part question. Tell everybody what the canless salad is. Uh, It is the only original menu item that's still here. We give our executive chef freedom to create complete autonomy. Uh, the entire menu, except for that one dish, which is a special dish. I mean, my basic is we're all addicted to it. Like you can say it out loud. Well, it's, it's just okay to, like, it's so delicious. My mom craved that salad when she was pregnant, which means mm-hmm. I'm genetically made up of that salad. You are all she ate. Yeah, I am the human canvas salad. Romaine, romaine, bacon, bacon mint, mint, oregano, lemon, olive oil, and lemon. Yeah, you know, salt and pepper. It's just a top salad. Uh, green like, ostensibly, it has no place on a fine dining menu, but we think a little differently about fine dining. And there's so many people in this town for whom that recipe just connects with. Mm-hmm. They remember it growing up as a kid or they've been eating it their entire lives. So we just, we keep it on there. We keep it on there because it's a part of who we are and where mm-hmm. we come from. And it's one of those pieces of our past. So that's the camel salad. It, it's not going I mean, it's anywhere. changed a little. Now we make our own bacon, or now we mm. use finer ingredients, but for the most part, it's, it's, the, it's the exact same. I'm just going to hop in here real quick to tell you what the canless salad is, since it was a little bit hard to hear the guys describing it. It's a romaine salad with a dressing made with olive oil, lemon, and an egg that has been cooked for 60 seconds. So all of that kind of whipped up. Then the salad is topped with crisped bacon, croutons that were crisped in the bacon fat, scallions, fresh mint and oregano, tomatoes, and fresh grated Romano cheese. If you Google canless salad, you can find the recipe on several websites like the New York Times and Epicurious. Okay, we better get moving along. You guys are so fun to chat with. We're running out of time. Okay, big question. What would your last meal be? Mark, you go first. Okay, I was debating. I was either like SpaghettiOs out of the can, which is I used to love to do all the time. And then I thought, no. I'm going to step it up. Here's my favorite thing. It would just be caprese. Tomato, mozzarella, basil, sherry vinegar, not balsamic. I could eat, I think I could eat that forever. A platter of it the size of this table. Just caprese? That's it, not a meal. That's a is, dish. It is a meal in and of itself. It is complete. Like totally. any like more specifics? Like you have a certain tomato or a certain mozzarella? Into it. No, yeah, but it would be very certain. Just, I'm very picky. Is it like an olive garden situation? It. No, it is not olive garden. It's my <laughs> I make, can I just say this? My wife's Italian, a part-time. I think I make a very good caprese. It is my most celebrated and special thing I eat all year long. Caprese. Never made me caprese in your life. Yeah, we're not there yet. You're, you're, you're saying you're not. the best caprese maker in the world. You've never shared balance? Say I'm the best caprese maker in the world. I don't think I've ever had caprese. I like <laughs> But you've traveled around the world. You've been to Italy. Like I've eaten it everywhere around the world. And yours is best. It's very good caprese, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I didn't say it was the best. I just said it's the one I want. It's the meal. Is there wine? I don't want to eat it? your caprese for like, my last Are you going to have any wine? Yeah, I would have wine. What, what, have what would wine. you have? What's your pairing? Um, my pairing. Let's see. What would I have? I would. It would be white. You know what it would be? It would be like a really sweet Chablis. Like just something wow. like 
You don't mean sweet, you mean dry. I, I mean, right, by sweet, I actually mean um, like awesome or sick or rad or cool oh. going there. I don't mean yeah. residual sugar in the wine. It's a dry wine. Because Chibli is the greatest wine in the world. Yeah. My last meal would be eating dumplings in Taipei at the original Din Tai Fung. I was in Shanghai with a good friend of mine who's also a restaurateur. And it was one of those days when we were like so tired and so hungry. And it's a hard city to be in as an American if you don't speak the language. It's not an easy place to be a tourist. Often when, when you're in Shanghai, everyone's trying to sell you something. And it's hard to know what to trust sometimes. Is that watch you're selling real or not real, right? So, And there's this bronze plaque outside this restaurant in a strip mall. And the bronze plaque says the New York Times in the mid-90s called this restaurant the top 10 restaurant in the world. There's no way this is real. We'd never heard of it. But we were so hungry, we went in. And it was like the fourth branch of Din Tai Fung. And we had this meal with just beer and xiaolong bao, which is their soup dumplings. We must have eaten 60 or 70 easily Ugh, between the two yes. And we couldn't believe that the place was empty and not more popular. And we like hopped on our phones after. And sure enough, the Taipei restaurant was named one of the 10 best restaurants in the world. And we couldn't believe that we had like discovered this thing. Just and we in. went back the next yes. day and there was a line like a thousand people long. And we didn't realize that it was like a Chinese holiday. And they're like, oh, this place actually is famous. We talk about that meal of dumplings, sake, and beer. The only thing that's better than yeah. pure melted cheese. The Din Tai Fung here in Seattle, it's great. And I'm a frequent guest. But it's it's not as good as it is over in Asia. And the Taipei restaurant, the original, which goes back to the 70s, has to be like the greatest single restaurant in the world. That's where I want to go. And then I'll die on the sidewalk right outside after, and I'll be so happy. For their last meals, Mark Canlis wants endless plates of his homemade caprese salad. And Brian Canlis wants Xiaolong Bao, beer, and sake from the fourth Din Tai Fung opened in Taipei. When we come back, we'll learn how they get the soup inside the dumplings. It's a little magic trick. And the history of what Brian and I consider to be one of the most delicious dishes of all time. Welcome back to Your Last Meal's first live and virtual show recorded at Crosscut Festival just a few weeks back. Crosscut Festival had an amazing lineup of speakers over five days, including U.S. Representative Pramila Jayapal, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, who wrote the best-selling book, White Fragility. Uh, there was travel guru Rick Steves. But we recorded this show right after a talk with Dr. Jane Goodall. So I guess I technically headlined for Jane Goodall. Or you guys, Jane Goodall opened for Your Last Meal. Which totally makes sense because when I was in fourth grade, I was a monkey for Halloween. So a true full circle moment for me. Thanks to Crosscut Festival for having us. Let's get back to the show. We are going to focus in on those soup dumplings, the Shao Long Bao from Din Tai Fung with Shao Ching Chow. There was a lot of three words in a row right there. <laughs> and Shao Ching is the Seattle author of Chinese Soul Food and her new book, Vegetarian Chinese Soul Food. Beautiful books. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And the whole time I'm listening to Brian describe Wax Poetic about soup dumplings, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I've been to all those locations. And yes, it's a fantastic parcel of deliciousness. And I know you want to get geeky about soup dumplings, and I'm ready to do that. So do you okay, want to good. ask a question or should I just launch into it? 
I'll ask you a question first, just because for anyone listening who's never had Xiaolong Bao, I just want to be clear that the soup is in the dumpling. It's not yes. a bowl of soup with dumplings in it. It is trapped inside of the dumpling wrapper. And so I want you to explain the magic. How so, do they get the soup in the dumpling? Well, first it's Xiaolong Bao. Xiao oh, is little. Long is the basket. Bao is the ball. Um, and so that how the soup gets into the dumpling is that you get basically meat gelatin, right? Mm -hmm. Meat jello that you make with bones and pork skin and all sorts of deliciousness to get the natural collagen, cook that down, chill it, becomes gelatin. You chop that up to go into the filling. And then when it steams, all of that melts and the soup mm -hmm. is inside. And it is probably one of the most delightful things to eat, but also one of the most dangerous because you have this boiling hot soup inside that's straight out of the steamer and you have to eat them hot. Yeah. So you develop a uh, Teflon tongue and eat very carefully. Can you give us so, an insider tip on how to know when it's the right temperature? Do you have like a, do you have a method for that or? Because it's dangerous. You know, as soon as it comes to the table, you, you start eating it. It's almost like you're aerating a sip of wine. You suck the soup out of the dumpling and kind of aerate it as you go. And that helps to cool it down a little bit hmm. so you're not scalding your tongue. Like once it cools, the wrapper just kind of um, shrinks in on itself. And it, it's just not the same textural experience. So you got to eat it while they're hot. Well, I'm wondering if the way I was taught was the wrong way, kind of like I was remembering the other day that when I first started eating sushi in my early 20s, we would put the pickled ginger on the roll and eat it that way. And now, you know, I haven't done that for a long time. So I'm wondering if this is a similar faux pas. I was taught to eat the soup dumplings by like taking the teeniest little bite to let the steam out and then to eat it. Do you not do well, that? You have well, you have your Chinese spoon and yeah. your chopstick in the other hand. Using your chopsticks, you help to lift the dumpling into your uh, soup spoon. So it's okay to reach into the basket that way. Some people take the small bite, let the steam escape, and then drink the soup and then eat the dumpling. Some people take a bigger bite. And then whether you want to dip it in sauce or chili sauce and, and all of that. So you have some differences of preference. So can we talk a little just briefly about the history? Um, when did these come about? Where are they from? Was this, I mean, it's such an elaborate, time-consuming dish to make. I was wondering if this was for royalty. Uh, well, legend has it that it was created in Nanshang County in Shanghai, you know, in the 19th century. But, you know, as with any of these types of history, that's sort of debated who actually invented it. And there's lots of traditional places in Shanghai. If you ever go there again, Brian, there are other restaurants. And in fact, if you want to look up the uh, Shanghai Soup Dumpling Index, this guy named Christopher uh, actually tried 52 different Shanghai uh, Shaolong Bao restaurants and then measured four different qualities mm. and put it in a poster. So it's, you know, ratio, weight of the filling ratio, all that stuff. And that's in a chart. And the thing with Ding Tai Fung is it's, it was founded in Taipei, but they happened to have a chef who knew how to make Shaolong Bao and he introduced that to yeah. Taipei. That's kind of the history of it. And speaking of Ding Tai Fung, if you ever stand outside the window um, and you see them, making their dumplings the wrappers weigh five grams the filling weighs 16 grams so for a total of 21 grams and there are exactly 18 pleats the chefs there train and train and train to get it exactly right every single time 
Now, when I teach soup dumpling making for home cooks, I'm like, okay, we're home cooks. We're not going to be that precise. Just, you know, make the dumpling, steam it, and you, you're good to go. The thinner the wrapper, the better it tastes, but it's really hard to get the wrapper just right. I don't know where I heard this, if I read it or heard it on a podcast, because when I went back to find it today, I couldn't. I heard a rumor that they won't hire dumpling makers who are left-handed because you have to all be in a line and it would disrupt the flow. You have to be a right-handed dumpling maker. I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case, (laughs) but if you're left-handed, you can train to be a right-handed pleader. I don't see that as an issue. You can be ambidextrous. Um, And if you make dumplings, and I have made many potsticker, boiled dumplings, that kind of thing, many, many tens of thousands across my decades of being on this earth. And you have to be ambidextrous if you're pleating on both the right and the left side. I am right-handed, so I naturally can pleat with my right hand, but I I can also pleat with my left hand. Okay, we have to go to Q&A in one minute, but I really, really want to ask you this question because I'm just intrigued because both of you, all of my guests um, grew up in restaurant families. Can you talk about where you learned to make dumplings, not soup dumplings, different kinds of dumplings, and you know how many you had to make over the years? <laughs> so typical immigrant story, came to the States. My parents were professionals in Taipei, but couldn't do what they did. So somehow they ended up in the restaurant business If I wasn't physically in school, I was in the restaurant. And when I was eight years old, I started making all the wontons for our restaurant. We didn't sell dumplings like uh, pot stickers um, because it was very labor intensive and people want cheap food. They want Chinese food to be cheap. So we would make that at home and many, many years of tried to venture account, but it's hard a lot. And in the last five, six years, I've been teaching pot sticker classes. And I have to say, I am the best at teaching pot stickers. (laughs) I have taught many of them. I have had hundreds of students, not only growing up making dumplings, but also teaching how to make dumplings. Mm -hmm. It just adds another level and layer of understanding of the mechanics around dumplings. So ask me anything. AMA. AMA. AMA Q&A. That brings us perfectly into our Q&A now. So um, one question you can all answer, but I'll start with um, Brian and Mark. People want to know, what are your thoughts on 11 Madison Park going vegan? Um, For those who don't know, that's a very fine dining restaurant in New York City that's been called by some the best restaurant in the world. And the chef announced very recently that when they reopen, all of the food is going to be vegan. So you can't crutch on butter or cream any longer. I think it's bold and I think it's exciting. Our entire industry needs to move that direction. It's the way we're all going. But we don't have to go that far. But I love that they're taking that step. And not every restaurant could. It's really hard to do. Uh, so nice to be rated one of the top restaurants in the world and have sort of the ability to do it. But I love that leadership. And I love that we're moving that direction. It's just you're going to see it all over the world. Yeah, and we the, need to go there. But like That's what fine dining should be doing. You know, like a really fancy luxury car comes out with a feature and then 10 years later, all the cheaper cars have that same feature as standard. That's what the great chefs of the world are doing. I think that's what Daniel's doing. Like he's going to pave a way to teach and help other restaurants be able to get off their meat kicks and be more open because when the great restaurants do it, it helps all the others be able to follow. And with your new chef, I know that, you know, she'll have a lot of autonomy to do what she wants to do, but um, do you anticipate adding a little bit more of a vegetarian flair or meatless Monday or something like that? It won't be meatless Monday. We've kind of been moving that direction for 
five or six years now. And uh, I'll tell you, it's not easy to do. You know, people come in and they have a, a certain mindset about what is special or what a big night out is going to look like. Yeah, or what expensive food looks like. Right. So, you know, wow, I'm paying this much money for celery. It just doesn't feel as cool as your $1.50 lobster in 1950. So, but we've been moving that direction pretty steadily for a number of years yeah. now. And, and that's one of the exciting things I think about Aisha is just her ability to, to make a mushroom or a piece of celery taste as good as yeah. a piece no, of fish. No, we, we, we really hope that the world continues to move towards protein being the complement to the veg as the star. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's where we need to go for our bodies and for our environment. Yeah. Well, Xiaoqing, I mean, you just did a whole new vegetarian version of your first book, so I'm sure you can relate. I, You hear a lot about, you know, in other cultures where the meat is used sparingly and it is usually a lot of vegetables, but in this country it is like slap a big steak you know, on the table and have a little side salad. So was the cookbook, did it come from people asking for those versions of the recipes or just something that you wanted to do? Actually, these are not necessarily vegetarian versions of meat filled dishes. These uh -huh. are just vegetable centric dishes and vegetable centric cooking. And what I have to say is that, you know, a lot of these cuisines, global cuisines already have a huge tradition of plant-based cooking. And so you know, it may be that a, a fine dining restaurant leads the way in the developed world, but really this type of food, this type of cooking, this type of eating has been around for centuries, right? Mm -hmm. Because meat is expensive. The reason there, you know, a lot of stir fry dishes are mostly vegetables is because meat is expensive, fuel is expensive. A lot of us have been eating this way for a long time, and there are a lot of chefs out there who are already doing this work. Um, so, you know, we have different perspectives. What are all of your favorite local Seattle dishes, just to put you on the spot? Oh, First thing that uh, comes in your mind. Rice cakes with spicy sausage at Jewel. Ooh, that's like a good mine. one. It's my favorite thing in the world. And these aren't the kind of rice cakes that my grandma would keep in her purse smeared with peanut butter. These are the ones that are closer to chewy noodles with rice flour. Yeah. Yasuko teriyaki, chicken teriyaki. Ooh, that's a very Seattle classic dish. Yeah. And donuts on the Mokotio Speedway. I always drive by that and I wonder. That's good. You will you will thank yourself. They're so good. Let's see. What else? Okay. Um, dishes you don't like or foods you don't like. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people in the food world were not very picky, but is there something that you don't want to eat? I don't know why uni is consumed. The reproductive organs of this, like, they know what it is. Yeah, it's, you just don't like it. It's just the worst. I hate it so much. It is It is really not his job. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, foods that I, we don't like. I, you like everything. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, no. <laughs> nope. What do you not like, Chaching? I don't like raw onions. I'll eat them cooked, but does something... I don't like raw onions, I, especially like big, gigantic onion rings, like on a burger or something. Or what about like salsa has is a great application of the raw onion. Yes, but when I do that, I mince the onions so fine. Okay, guys, we're out of town. We're out of town. We're out of time. <laughs> uh, we're not out of town. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here today. That was Mark and Brian Canlis's last meal. Uh, go to canlis.com to see what they're up to because they're always up to something fun. And thanks to Xiao Ching Chow. Make sure and pick up one or both of her cookbooks, Chinese Soul Food and Vegetarian Chinese Soul Food. 
And if you want to learn more about Xiaolongbao and Din Taifeng, we actually covered this in one of the very, very, very early episodes um, with my friend Luke Burbank, who is the host of Livewire Radio and the podcast Too Beautiful to Live. That is Luke's last meal as well. So I actually went to a Din Taifeng, got to go back in the kitchen, learn the secrets. You can listen to that one. Just scroll on back to, I think, 2016, one of the first episodes of Your Last Meal. And self-promotion, if you've never listened to Your Last Meal before and you liked it, which you might if you're still here, um, make sure and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow along on Instagram at HelloRachelBell, E-E-L-L-E. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Um, I am privileged, perhaps, to be the caboose of this Crosscut Festival. This is the very last program of the entire deal. I think we started on May 3rd. So five days of amazing programming. Have a great weekend, everyone. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal.